people who are critics of these tests will say that the performance on the SAT is highly correlated with your income. But what they don't say is that nearly everything that's being used and could conceivably be used in admissions is correlated mm -hmm. with income. We're not going to say we're not going to test for those things uh, if they're correlated. We're going to say we want to solve those things. We want to eliminate those problems. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what's happening? Well, coming up on our show today, standardized testing may be getting less standard. We'll discuss what makes that issue so important to our education system. Journalists are coming under attack in Ukraine, the most chilling front on Russia's assault on the truth. And a majority of Americans agree the Supreme Court needs reform. We'll talk about what changes are really on the table. But first things first, it's been two years since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. As you're speaking and as we're both sitting here, the World Health Organization has just declared that this is a pandemic. All right, we have breaking news now. Let's get to it. It has to do with COVID-19. And the World Health Organization has just declared it is a pandemic at this point. This just into our newsroom, the World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus a pandemic with 118,000 cases across 114 countries and 4,200 deaths worldwide. Two years, two whole years of our lives being completely upended by a virus invisible to the human eye. So let's start with this. When we look back at the last two years of just this craziness with COVID-19, what stands out to us the most? Like, what's the most stark thing about all of this? Well, I think like most people, I went back Recently, I was just looking at the photos in my phone from this time period, because I think as we're sitting, this is either certainly the week that lockdown started in New York. It might even be the exact day when lockdown started in New York. And I was just looking to, to just see how my life had changed from day to day. Ricky, I'm curious you, because you, you've been in, in school throughout a lot of this. Yeah. Like, where were you and how did it affect um, you in the, the immediate few months after that? Yeah, I was midway through uh, my spring semester of sophomore year at NYU at the time. And I finished that semester out uh, remotely in LA out with my mom and then decided that finishing school didn't really make sense at that kind of pace with full tuition and Zoom and nothing is really the same. And so I think that that kind of falls into this broader pattern of there's huge percentages. 20% of Americans have made career changes during the pandemic. 46% are considering it. And so one kind of silver lining is that people are thinking more creatively outside of just the status quo of like the achievement loop. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I went on this weird twisted path where I should be graduating right now. And instead I'm here. So where were you, Corey, during all this? Um, I was in Alabama. It was crazy. My wife was pregnant at the time. So things were already pretty surreal in my life. And then all of a sudden I got a call from my boss on March 17th, basically saying, we're not coming back to work for the foreseeable future. And I was like, okay. And then everything just went downhill. Did you lose your job or did you? No, I, I retained my job. I went, but we went back in May. It was Alabama. So we didn't lock down as long as other places did. Just to look at some of the numbers, there have been over 460 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally. Over 6 million people in the world have died as a result. Some even estimate that the real death toll is near 18 million. Uh, we may never really know. Uh, globally, 16% 
60% of companies are now fully remote and about 62% of workers aged 22 to 65 claim to work remotely at least occasionally like in the world. That's insane to me. Uh, Medicare telehealth visits increased 63 fold during the pandemic. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, U.S. consumers spent $1.7 trillion online. That's just in the U.S. We spent $1.7 trillion online, which is um, $609 billion more than the two previous years combined. Netflix reported 214 million global paid memberships for the th for the third quarter of 2021. That's up from 168 million in 2019. 71% of singles say that they're more interested in long-term relationships now than before the pandemic. Ah, what was that percentage again? 71% of singles say they're more interested in long-term relationships now. And that's just the existentialism. It's the existentialism yeah. of yeah, yeah. it all kicking in there. Because I, I think I had the opposite. I'm seeing people locked up with their kids and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to wait a little <laughs> while longer. Uh, yeah, right. Nearly a million pets were adopted in 2021, resulting in a 61% adoption rate, the highest rate in the past six years, which is a great thing, but hopefully all those people keep those pets, yeah. right? And Absolutely. I don't know what the percent change has been in all-you-can-eat buffets, but where are the all-you-can-eat buffets? Like, why haven't they come back? Well, I'm going to bring us to something slightly more important here, which is like, how are we prepared for the next one of these things? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think one thing that's a little bit depressing is that just this week, Congress was debating whether to significantly increase our preparedness, uh, not only for COVID-19, but for pandemics generally, and essentially decided not to. Like, they nixed a $15 billion request from Biden in COVID funding. And this was from his $1.5 trillion spending bill. And this is really depressing to me because the, the, the one lesson we should have here is that we should try to avoid ever getting back here in the first place, whether it's from new variants from COVID or from other pathogens and diseases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hopefully Congress can get it together because it doesn't sound like that's going to be enough funding to deal with something on this scale in the future. So moving on, the legacies of the pandemic are particularly clear when we look at the state of our schools. Among so many other things, COVID disruptions have shaken up the debate around standardized testing. Now, there's a lot to this, but let's start with the fact that thousands of universities are dropping standardized testing from their requirements. Ricky, what is going on with the lower standards here? Yeah, so um, right now there's, for the fall 2022 uh, admissions, 1,800 plus colleges have gone test optional, and that includes private, public, prestigious, like all different sorts, um, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, universities of California and Texas, like pretty much across the board. And I experienced that myself in the, in the transfer process recently. And the pandemic was kind of the, the reasoning behind it, because obviously, especially in 2020, it was impossible for kids to sit down for a standardized test in that sort of setting. But this is continuing um, on and on. And there's a ton of different arguments about, you know, testing anxiety and it only tests certain kinds of intelligence or there's specific disparities between socioeconomic classes or GPA is a better predictor. And also a very controversial one um, that there are racial disparities and therefore this might be a roadblock to affirmative action. And I know you, Ravi, were um, talk talking about a John McWhorter article recently that addressed that. Yeah, on March 15th, he wrote a piece for the New York Times and, and his title was Making the SAT and ACT Optional is the Soft Bigotry of Low Expectations. And he the title is based on this uh, George W. Bush quote where he talked about the soft bigotry of low expectations, which is personally not only my favorite Bush quote, but probably my favorite quote from a president in my lifetime, because wow. I think it so succinctly describes what's at issue here. And I'm going to give you a few quotes from a quarter in this piece. He says, I find myself thinking about 
how we've allowed ourselves to all but give up on the idea that many black and Latino students as well as Pacific Islander and Native American students can compete. Uh, when we expect less of people, it's often because we think less of them. And then he basically challenges the sort of Kendys of the world and the Robin D'Angelo's of the world who are critical of standardized tests and say that they're forms of white supremacy to say, point me to a question that's white supremacist. And basically saying it's the people who are saying, um, that people can't compete on these tests that are the white supremacists and the racists and the people with low expectations. And I thought it was super powerful. Yeah, I love in this piece McWhorter writes where he talks about the fact that it seems like with some people, equality equals people who are minorities just being there rather yeah. than actually contributing. Like the idea of just, oh, we're here, but we're not expected to perform on the same level. And, that, and how that's actually more offensive to us than even not being there at all. Right. I mean, right. what do you think about it, Ravi, as far as I feel like it's more about, you know, income level and mm -hmm. yeah. socioeconomic things like that rather than just like immutable characteristics like race and things like that. People who are critics of these tests uh, will say that uh, the performance on the SAT is highly correlated with your income. But what they don't say is that nearly everything that's being used and could conceivably be used in admissions is mm -hmm. correlated with income. Pretty much. Uh, you know, think about, you know, your extracurricular activities, right? Think about your GPA. Think about your letters of recommendation, which people get, they can pay services to write letters of recommendation for them. And obviously these, su these super fancy private schools have like armies of mentors or people who help refine those essays, right? You can keep going on. And never mind, like we wouldn't use this argument in the health context, right? Nearly every health metric is correlated with income. Um, it's something that progressives will readily point out is that, you know, whether it's asthma rates or, you know, incidents of diabetes, et cetera, are going to be correlated with income. We're not going to say we're not going to test for those things uh, if they're correlated. We're going to say we want to solve those things. We want to eliminate those problems, right? So it's not white supremacy to say you want to eliminate those problems and acknowledge them. It's actually the opposite, right? And so I think about it as somebody who had kids in my schools uh, that I care deeply about who I want to get into these schools. Uh, I think that these tests are important. I think that they're, they're like any test, they're limited. It's like a blood pressure test, right? You wouldn't say that your blood pressure test tells you everything about who you are medically, but it's an important marker. I would want to keep the tests um, and I would I want to add other things to them. And I, I want to take into account income so that like the the barriers that you're overcoming to get there in the first place are taken into account. Yeah, it just seems like a lot of progressives say, well, black and brown children aren't doing as good on these tests. So let's eliminate the test. But maybe we should be asking the question, why aren't they doing good on the test right. and addressing those yeah. problems? And Ricky, we were talking about the fact that the pandemic is basically being used as an excuse to get rid of the these tests, which is something that a lot of progressives have been pushing for for a while. But then what, you know, objective metric are we going to have to decide whether or not someone, you know, belongs in one of these schools? Because, I mean, you've been doing some research about what's been going on with GPAs lately yeah, in this country. So, I mean, it seems like GPAs are becoming increasingly irrelevant to people's actual academic performances. Um, and that's an argument that a lot of people make is that GPAs are a better predictor, but increasingly they're entirely inflated um, from grade level, like low grade levels all the way through higher education. Um, in 1990, the average high school GPA was a 2.68. Now it's a 3.11. Um, and in higher education, A is by far the most common grade that people get. And wow. it's interesting to look at the trends over time because A's have gone up, B's and C's have gone down, and D's and F's have kind of held steady. And so, I mean, it kind of fits into the whole <laughs> coddling, like, participation trophy sort of thing that we have going on in our culture. But, um, you know, how are we going to, what is the objective metric and who's to say that 
teachers don't have some sort of incentive to inflate the grades or school systems have an incentive to inflate the grades and compete with each other to get into certain college placements and stuff. And so if we don't have the SAT or or something to give that context, how does an admissions process work? Right. The, the worst thing you could tell a parent is not that their kid's failing, because usually that's obvious, is that they're average. Nobody wants to be told they're average. <laughs> that's what's going on here. Yeah. I also think like, imagine where we get rid of the, uh, the SAT, ACT. Can you imagine like the Sally soccer moms invading schools being like you know litigating every grade given yeah. that like if the gpa is the thing that matter, matters the most like that subjective metric they're gonna bully their way through that and that's only gonna exacerbate some of these trends because you know like somebody my mom worked two jobs she didn't have time to go to school to argue with grades like it was basically up to me right and i just mm -hmm. didn't bother but there are other kids who like would seem like their mom would show up, you know, for, to litigate every little thing that would happen in the school. Those are the people who would benefit from this. Yeah, and when it comes to this great inflation argument, it's almost like the colleges have an incentive to do it because if everybody else is doing it, right, and yeah. you're not, then it looks like your students are like dumber or something. Yeah, and remember this this Harvard case, the affirmative action case. We would not have the data to show that Harvard was discriminating against Asian American students if you didn't have an objective measure. Yeah. And remember, if we, if we call back, and we'll link in the show notes to this, one of the things that, that we pointed out in that study and that's in the amicus briefs in the Supreme Court is that Harvard basically was gaming their, sub or the allegedly uh, gaming their subjective measures to prevent Asian Americans from getting in because the objective measures made it obvious that they should have gotten in. Yeah. So in the absence of these tests, we wouldn't be able to even point that out. And in Florida, they just passed a law changing the way they're doing standardized testing. Ricky, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is for um, younger grades, like in elementary school and middle school and a couple of tests in high school. And rather than, in the, under the old system in Florida, they would do a big like week-long testing thing at the end of the year to evaluate how, how students are doing, how classes and how teachers are doing. But now they're doing three exams a year and in increments throughout that will be shorter, like within a day, um, a little briefer and they're making sure that the turnaround time is actually adequate to address issues so within a week teachers can see how kids are doing and within two weeks parents can and so there's the idea of keeping teachers accountable of making sure that students are progressing throughout the year and being able to address things before they're a problem at the end and trying to figure out what went wrong and so i i mean i'm a fan of this bill from what i can see so far um and they're going to start implementing uh this upcoming year will be the baseline um and they're not going to evaluate schools based on that but then they want to see how much they improve going forward yeah and i have to admit that as somebody who doesn't love desantis my my initial reaction was to try to find problems with this. Uh, but I actually do think on the face of it, it's an improvement. I agree with you, Ricky. Like any good school is gonna be doing the kind of interim assessments that they're mandating here. Uh, and I like the fact that they're adaptive, meaning like, you know, like the questions can get harder as kids do better, or you can, you can test for more remedial skills as students perform worse. But like you said, like this gives people data in real time to actually respond and do the right thing with data. That's what schools should do. Like there is something weird about the fact that we everything culminates in this test at the end of the year uh, yeah. and then everybody goes away. We can get the same information from the FSA in a much shorter period of time and in a way that provides really quick feedback. Now under the FSA, students, parents and teachers would receive the results after the school year. 
Well, it was too late to do anything about that. How are you going to remediate if you see problems when people are already out for the summer? Right, which obviously I'm on record saying we shouldn't go away in the summer. Uh, we wouldn't have that problem if we didn't have summer breaks, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> okay. uh, but I think the implementation here is going to be critical and uh, the politics are interesting. Democrats have largely been silent on this, which I find fascinating. I mean, has there ever been any real evidence that questions on the ACT or the SAT have any type of racial bias to them? Yeah, or these tests, right? Or the or these like kind or of these, state tests. Yeah, these state tests. I don't like. Kendi has an interesting argument, and I'll I'll read this to you. Um, this is from this is from one of Kendi's critiques of of testing generally. And this is what he says. He says, gathering knowledge of abstract items from words to equations that have no relation to our everyday lives has long been the amusement of the leisured elite, relegating the non-elite to the basement of intellect because they do not know as many abstractions uh, has been the conceit of the elite. So basically what he's saying is we're testing like these leisurely concepts. But what I would ask Kendi is like, do you want your kid to be able to add fractions and online denominator, denominators to read a paragraph, like a, a you know basic syntax and be able to answer basic questions about that, to write a five paragraph essay? Never mind the fact that like in these areas of tactile life that he's talking about, whether it's a mechanic or a barber or whatever, you've got to take licensure tests and those things. And it's pretty easy to measure whether you're good at that thing or not. If, if you're a carpenter, you can test whether somebody's good yeah. at carpenter or not. So I think it's an interesting critique, but it just doesn't convince me. I mean, in school, I remember us always being told, you know, a lot of the children didn't feel like they were ever going to need certain things in geometry. They were ever going to need certain things in calculus. But like you said, some of these things can apply to even the more what we think of as more, you know, average Joe trades. Like a barber right. could benefit from knowing geometry. You know, everybody can benefit from reading. Yeah, right? everybody can benefit from everybody reading. Benefit Every from reading. person. And you know what? Testing whether people are good at math or not is a good indicator about whether you're going to be able to do things like engineering that require math. Right exactly. now, you can adapt to things. We need we need more statistics, less calculus. Probably. I mean, we can go through all this. Yeah. But in the end, I'm a supporter of these tests. One last thing about the politics before we go. It is it is depressing to me that Democrats are silent on this by and large. Mm -hmm. The Florida Education uh, Association, which teachers union had this to say, the bill does not focus on student learning or on providing teachers time to monitor and assess children's progress. In fact, it probably will add more work for already overwhelmed teachers. Most basically, the bill fails students. Now, how they would know it doesn't add time is interesting to me because that's not in any way indicated here. Like a local district could like create days for teachers to meet and parse this data. But this is fascinating to me, and I wanna point it out because they're moving the goalposts. They've been critiquing high stakes tests forever. Yeah. Now that we address that, they're like, still not good enough for me. It reminds me of the Common Court where they were kind of supportive of it in the beginning because they wanted to end multiple choice tests. They were constantly criticizing um, the high stakes multiple choice tests. And then we're like, all right, we're gonna make a test that involves more like writing and like uh, more conceptual knowledge. And they're like, oh, that's not good enough for us either. So yeah. this is depressing. Yeah, and I think like, in my opinion, if I were a teacher, I'd rather keep my kids like calm and doing tests for a day at a time rather than having like squirmy kids for an entire week trying to sit them down in desks to concentrate. Like this actually seems a little more logical to me from the teacher's perspective too. For sure. Well, we'll just have to see what the results are from this new way of testing in Florida. Now on to some harrowing news out of Ukraine. A string of attacks suggests Russian troops may be targeting journalists, an act that is illegal under international law. So far, five journalists have been killed and 35 more have been injured. One video in particular shows Russian forces firing on a Sky News team as they helplessly try to identify themselves as press. Luckily, no one was killed in this incident, but this footage we're about to show shows just what these journalists are up against, and we want to warn you, this is pretty graphic. Oh, 
think it's a Ukrainian checkpoint and a mistake, so we identify ourselves. British journalists! Journalista! Somehow we have to get out of this, but the rounds keep coming. Where can we go? Shall I crawl? Can we crawl down the embankment? Andre! Camera operator Richie Mockler has taken two rounds to his body armour, but is still stuck in the car. Where are you? He runs for it, in a hail of bullets. Absolutely terrifying. I mean, when you look at that footage, clearly these individuals identified themselves as press and they were still being fired upon. I mean, what, uh, I mean, this, this seems like a very serious issue for anyone trying to report the truth in Ukraine. Yeah, and it seems as a total now, there have been five journalists killed um, and at least 35 injured. And this is really harrowing because in information warfare where we don't really know what's true and what's not, the most important thing is having people on the ground and making sure that they're safe and they are protected under the Geneva Convention as civilians. So this potentially constitutes uh, war crimes. Yeah, and whether they were journalists or not, they certainly didn't seem to be armed. Right. Yeah. So uh, this seems like it, it would potentially be a war crime either way. But obviously, the targeting of journalists and, and the murder of journalists is a particular concern because we won't know anything about any of the other civilians being killed if there's no yeah. journalists in the war zone. Yeah. And Putin has said that he's not targeting civilians in Ukraine, but yet we continue to get footage that shows just the opposite of that. So of the people killed so far, uh, there have been two similar ambushes of journalists in cars. Um, there was a Ukrainian camera operator who died when Russian forces uh, shelled a TV tower. And then also a, the fifth death was a Ukrainian who was a reservist who was a journalist that covered uh, military matters and ended up going to serve as soon as he could uh, represent his country and died in an attack as well. Yeah, I mean, journalists getting killed in combat zones is not unusual. It's just one of those unfortunate things that happens when war occurs. Around 1,500 journalists have been killed since 1993, prior to the beginning of this Ukrainian conflict. Uh, a lot of that was in Afghanistan. A lot of that was in Syria. I think Syria has been one of the biggest battlegrounds for this in the last decade or so. What's suppressing here is that it's not even just the murder of journalists that we're seeing. 2021 was the uh, highest uh, rate of imprisonment of journalists we've seen in recent memory, and China is the biggest uh, the biggest offender here. But it's not just China and Russia. You know, this is a practice that goes back with Putin even outside of traditional war zones. You know, there was this uh, reporter that I was always a huge fan of. Her name is Anna Politskaya, and she was covering the um, the just the incredible tragedy of Chechnya. Yeah. And this is, let me read you a little bit about what her life was like. Uh, for seven years, she refused to give up reporting on the war, despite like incredible acts of intimidation coming from uh, the authorities. She was arrested by Russian military forces in Chechnya, and they subjected her to a mock execution. Um, she was poisoned while flying to Moscow uh, to when she was heading to report uh, on the Beslan school hostage crisis, so like another school issue. Um, she had to turn back because she had to seek medical treatment. And then on October 7th, 2006, she was murdered in an elevator block in her apartment. And so you think about this, and this, she was a huge critic of Putin. She wrote a book called Putin's Russia. She wrote a, a book called uh, Small Corner of Hell about Chechnya. And I, I think about this in terms of 
Like, why does this matter? Because that's real courage. Like sometimes I think about like when we're trying to do a tough story or whatever, it's like, all right, maybe you won't be invited to the right dinner party. But when I think about these people reporting in places like Russia, that's incredible courage. Like, you know, that woman who held up that sign the other day on a state broadcast, she may not live uh, much longer because of that. And so I admire these people so much for what they do. Now let's turn to the Supreme Court. It's an institution almost as old as the country itself, and it seems to be in about the same shape as America lately. Highly partisan, trending older, and resistant to change. A majority of voters think the court is in dire need of reform. So let's go through some of the main proposals on the table here, starting with the most controversial one, expanding the court. Now, some people refer to this as court packing. Uh, What do we think about the idea of putting more people on the Supreme Court than the nine justices that are currently there? So as background, Article 3, Section 1 of our Constitution talks about the fact that there will be a Supreme Court, but it leaves so much to Congress to figure out. The number, and and most importantly for this conversation, the number of justices that we have on the Supreme Court. And Congress has changed the size of the court seven times. So there is precedent for this in the past. Now, there is a huge debate about what it would mean uh, to expand the court or to, you know, potentially shrink it. To me, I've been a proponent of expanding the court most recently because I have been a partisan warrior. And I'll at least explain what my sort of rationale there was, which I'm not advocating for on this 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 show. But um, I got an argument in the lead up to the November election when I was more optimistic about the fact that I thought we were going to get more people into the Senate and that we would have the votes to expand the court. And I felt that the way that McConnell was gaming the confirmation process, especially what happened with Garland, merited that that the Democrats at least take one additional seat in addition to whatever they would normally get in a Biden term. And so for very partisan reasons, I was supportive of expanding the court. And my rationale was... uh, there is precedent for this. It's not that abnormal. But for people who don't like partisanship, I imagine that would be a reason not to expand the court. Well, the precedent for it comes from the 19th century when the political parties were a little different. We haven't expanded the court since 1869. Last April, Democrats introduced a bill to expand the court to 13 seats. That's past nine. That would give potentially Biden the, the opportunity to put four additional people on the Supreme Court all at one time, which I think if if you were on the if the shoe was on the other foot and we had Trump still in office and he just automatically got the opportunity to put four additional people in line with his ideology on the on the Supreme Court at one time, I, I don't think anybody who disagrees with Trump would want to see something like that. But Her. I think like my thought was they already did that once, right? Like they never put like that many people on it. They one time, gamed though. the process to to take a Democratic. They seat. They gamed the process to take one seat. They didn't yeah. put five additional. But then, people like, on let's there. just start with one. Was my thinking. Well, the Democrats want to start with four. Yeah. Well, that's just like a little bit of like negotiation, you know, just like <laughs> a little bit yeah, of negotiation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. we, we start with four. We come down to one. We seem less reason, unreasonable, you know. It's always interesting how on this issue there is just so much flip flopping depending on who is the president at the time, and yeah. I think that that makes these conversations really, really difficult. But it's also so interesting when you look at the Constitution itself that so much of this institution is based on precedent and not on anything that our founders wrote. And so this is one place where you could actually make meaningful reform potentially without a constitutional amendment. But 
in terms of court packing, that's probably one of the least popular options. There's only 38% public support. And I think that there are some some other steps that we can take that might be less drastic. Yeah. And one of those steps is uh, if we instituted term limits, which yeah. are infinitely yeah. more popular with the American public. Uh, just some background on this. No other democracy gives lifetime appointments to the, it, their equivalent of the Supreme Court. 49 states don't allow uh, lifetime tenure. Uh, I think Rhode Island is the only state that does. Oh, Rhode Island. Um, I don't know. Um, the, and, and the average age of the nominees to the Supreme Court has stayed constant while life expectancy has gone up, which means that the yeah. average age of people on the court has gone up. And the number that's being bandied about for various reasons, there was legislation on this, is potentially an 18-year limit. What do we think about that? I mean, 18 years gives you enough time to have a, a good bit of a you know handprint on the Supreme Court without getting to the point where you're just so jaded and so distant from public opinion that you're just doing stuff out of some sense of a name morality that doesn't really apply to the standard of things. I want to say what uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, who's retiring this year, back in 2016 said, when and when talk when talked about like term limits said I do think that if there were a long term it said I don't know eighteen twenty years something like that and it was fixed I would say that's just fine in fact it would make my life a lot simpler to tell you the truth and even um, John Roberts back in the eighties when he was working for Reagan he expressed. Um, support for putting a term limit on it because according to him kind of like what you just said back in the nineteenth century people didn't live as long and now people are living to ninety quite easily, especially if you're a Supreme Court justice, you have that good health care and you, you know, you're sitting in your robe all day. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, because of that. I, I well, I think that, that that Robert's quote is even more powerful than Breyer because he, he goes specific. He says 15 years would ensure that federal judges would not lose all touch with reality through decades of ivory tower existence. Yeah. Wow. And also, I think it would broaden the candidate pool considerably because now almost every appointee is in their 50s because they're old enough to have experience but then young enough to live a long time right. and you know if there's somebody who's a little older that actually would be a good fit for the court i would rather them be there for a shorter discrete period of time that makes perfect sense right and there there are some people who say this would be a bad idea and so i want to at least air some legitimate critiques of this and just to put context if there's an 18-year limit that means every two years there would be a vacancy and you know the upside of that obviously is you could predict a vacancy, so there could be like a pretty steady process of this kind of stuff. But uh, Vanderbilt University looked into this. They had uh, a paper from 2019, and they used uh, computer a uh, computer simulation to say, well, going back to 1973 when Roe was decided, what would happen if we had this 18-year term limit rule in place? And what they found. And I'll come back to like how we trust this or not. But what they found is that Roe would have been overruled in 1987, reinstated in 2009, and overruled again in 2017. Now, there are all sorts of quibbles with this. Why 1973? Yeah. How did they decide what kind of justices are on there? But I do think there's some merit to their argument that there will be way more turbulence in precedent in a world where you're changing the court that much. Uh, but I mean, that's, but that that study is just so hypothetical and all over the place. Like, how can they really, why 72? And and really, I don't get how it would change every two years. If What if like the people that are already on the court like grandfathered in or something? Like, Well, I mean, it's just, it, it's just like assuming that nobody dies within their 18-year term limit. And then you go through the process of like, where, where like the, the people now, like like you stagger their terms, right? Like almost like it would be a board mm -hmm. of directors. It would come up every two years, assuming if the legislation's written in a way 
that everybody's kind of on a different term. I just want to see a 30-year-old on the Supreme Court. That's going to happen. I mean, that's the problem with this, though, per Ricky's point, is like for purely partisan reasons, we're going to be taking infants and putting them on the court because you can get more years out of them. A baby might can lead this country to the real change it needs. (laughs) And and speaking of change, there's the talk about a code of ethics for the Supreme Court. I was surprised to find out that there's no code of ethics whatsoever for the Supreme Court. There's nothing that governs them as far as like things that they can't do, uh, positions in which they have to recuse themselves from certain um, cases. There's just nothing. Uh, a Notre Dame law professor, Veronica Martinez, argues that the legitimacy of the court has been damaged by recent confirmations and that reform is needed in order to, uh, in order for the public to maintain their confidence in judicial rulings. But she argues that because of the separation of powers in the three branches of our government, that only the court itself would really be able to apply this standard to the court now there is a bill right now i think it's murphy out of uh, connecticut him and uh, chris murphy senator chris murphy and hank johnson a representative from georgia they have this bicameral uh, legislation that they oppose that's that basically wants to put a uh, code of ethics on the supreme court but it's it's just kind of stalled right now it's not really going anywhere and it's just such a partisan issue if you're a doctor you have a code of ethics if you're a lawyer there there are bar associations even like the other judges in our systems have to abide by codes of ethics it is absurd that the supreme court doesn't have one yeah i almost every uh federal judge has to do that in the first place so it wouldn't be an enormous stretch to institute a code of ethics and then another uh, potential reform is transparency which i think is the most broadly popular uh, idea, which 70% of judges think that oral arguments should be broadcasted. There's 65% public support, mostly um, citing building trust with the institution because there's a lot of mystery of what happens behind closed doors. And these are very consequential decisions that they're making, just nine people for the entire country. Um, And we know just recently there was an issue with Gorsuch's um, statement about flu deaths saying hundreds, thousands or hundreds of thousands. And transcripts can be faulty. There's a lot that can get lost in translation. And for me, I think if we're taxpayers are funding this institution, they're answerable to us in the end. And I have no issue with TV broadcast or at least some more public transparency about what happens with these deliberations that ultimately change our day to day lives. Just to be clear, they do have audio recordings, uh, which uh, that's enough for me. I think I care a little bit less about this than the other ones. I think it would be fascinating to see how they deliberate on, on some of these items because there, there is a good argument to say that when they, they get together and they decide, is it 5-4, is it yada, 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 like everything should be available to the public about yeah. how they make these decisions. I think that could potentially help improve things. And there's also another element to it with the delay in getting those audio recordings or getting the transparency in real time. And there's a push to have things come out live so that we know we're up to date. We know what's going on behind the doors. And yeah. I think that that is also point. important as well, because why does it matter when a decision is made and then all of a sudden we know why it was afterwards? Or when the decision's coming down. Like, yeah. I, I feel like they love this sort of the pomp and circumstance of this. to be like, ooh, when is this decision, this, this crazy decision coming out? And it, it adds to the mystique of the court. Whereas I'm like, well, if my life depended on this decision, I would kind of want to know yeah. Yeah. when this thing is coming. There's no reason why they can't be like, hey, expect this thing in a month on this date. Like any other professional in society, yeah. let's give you a freaking deadline for that, right? Now, yeah. I know that you have to yeah. get a lot of these things out at the end of the term, yeah. but they're often dropping these decisions just on random days. It's like, like be professionals. I just want to see them fight. I just want to I want to see the liberation because I mean you think about like how ideologically different some of these people on this court are I just want to see like the four or five or the five four split whatever it is I want to see the four 
argue the heck out of their point against the five, like like cage match. But style. that's what people who who are against this want to avoid is that they don't want to turn the Supreme Court into another aspect of like this public display of partisanship. This kind of already is when you got one of the Supreme Court justices wife attending like, you know, stop the steal rallies on January 6th. I mean, well, I think that gets to the ethics thing, though, right? Like, I think like the the and you're referring to Justice Thomas's wife wife, who admitted this week that she attended the January 6th rally, which she's she has a right to show up to anything she wants to do. But I think the hypothetical of cases about January 6th arriving at the Supreme Court would create a potential conflict of interest for Thomas. And when there's not a standard to help us parse through what his obligation would be to recuse himself on that, that's a problem. Mm. Absolutely. And it's also worth noting in terms of transparency, there are different proposals. Some of them involve just broadcasting oral arguments versus the deliberations and the kind of going back and forth. And I think in terms of civic engagement and civic knowledge, because these are important issues at hand, it's great that the public could hear both sides and actually understand what the deliberation's about in the end. That's a really good point. So let's move on to a few updates here at the end of our show. Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, the fact that there were people with Uber and Lyft trying to unionize. There are some updates on that, correct, Ravi? Yeah, I think the big question we asked the other day was, what are these gig, how do the gig workers feel about this debate around whether they should be classified as full-time employees or independent contractors? And how in general do they even feel about their employers and about their their gig work? Uh, And I found since a Pew study from December 2021 that interviewed gig workers and asked them how they feel. And here's just a few stats on this. 16% of Americans have earned money through an online gig platform. And it's there's way more concentrated among people under 30 and Hispanics. 68% of these workers say it's a side job. 31% say it's the main job. They cite the ability to make their own hours as among the uh, most important things that drive them to that work. So the flexibility really matters to them. About two thirds of current or recent gig platform workers think companies that run these platforms are fair when it comes to their pay. And so 72% think it's fair how jobs are assigned. 64% think that the pay is fair. 50% think the benefits are fair. A majority of Americans think that these workers uh, should be classified as independent contractors. And uh, 65% of the workers themselves, the gig workers, think they should be classified as independent contractors. So generally, they feel they're pretty happy about the work that they have, the pay they have, the way their employers treat them. And they think they should be, in pretty strong numbers, think that they should be classified as independent contractors. Well, that spells bad news for the people trying to unionize them. Um, Interesting. We got another update about my old stomping grounds, San Francisco. Seems like they're always in the news about something. And Ricky, what's going on with the district attorney out there? Yeah, so we've hit them a lot recently talking about homelessness and the recent recall of school board members. And now the district attorney, Chase Boudin, is um, facing a recall election as well. And this comes as burglaries are up 40% since the pandemic. Homicides are up 37%. And a lot of people are pointing to his policy. He eliminated cash bail. He restricted uh, pretrial detention and he released as much as 40 percent of the jail population. And so there's a lot of blame being placed on him. Sixty eight percent of the population is pro recall. Eighty three thousand people signed the petition, which is like 10 percent of the population. And so this is likely to take place in June and things look pretty bad for him. So it's interesting to see a progressive city kind of wrestling with some of the downsides of the policies that have gone awry in the past year. And so there's definitely some growing pains and some pushback happening. Yeah, it's fascinating because we we did the reporting and we'll link to it. uh, Regressives episode where we talked about the San Francisco school board and then that recall was overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. successful. Yeah, we just talked about home 
homelessness in the last episode in San Francisco and the city's failure to to really grapple with that problem. And now we've got the criminal justice situation. It's all following similar trends where the, the city's rejecting its own leadership. Yeah. And I think this is should be a wake-up call to progressives, right? I think when progressives see states like Texas, they say, oh, that's like all the bad stuff that happens there from a governor's perspective is a reflection of right-wing ideology. But then when they see a place like San Francisco, they'll be like, oh, that's that's an outlier. Whereas I think like it's a reflection as somebody who coached these candidates across the country, this is the excess of ideas that progressives are grappling with. And it's okay to say, all right, we tried something, it didn't work, and now yeah. we've learned from it. And I think people should be transparent about that. And there's also just renewed interest as a whole in recall elections, which I'm in favor of, because I think of an elected official that people kind of just checked a box on a ballot and didn't have strong feelings about or is not actually being answerable to people. It's good to see some some justice being done and some um, people having their feet held to the fire when they're making policies that affect day to day lives of the people they represent. Yeah, well, at least the people of San Francisco seem to be taking their city back. And uh, I agree with you on, on recall. I think we should be able to recall the president. Like, I just, I I'm, I, well, maybe we'll save this debate for another day. I'm a little bit more weary of making it too easy to recall because then you're just spending money constantly yeah. on yeah, elections, which is definitely. a valid issue. But, but this one kind of seems in the back. Like it, the numbers for, are not good for him. You seem a little gleeful about this. <laughs> it's pretty, well, I mean, his policies have been pretty crazy. And yeah. 74% of the city views him unfavorably. And okay. so I think that that is just goes to show that it's not just me i'm Absolutely. i'm for recalls of politicians i hate and, and i'm against them for politicians i like what a convenient answer robbie what a very convenient stance <laughs> well we want to thank you all for watching today make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel and if you're listening to the podcast make sure to rate review and subscribe we will see you guys next time